Scripture text for this evening is from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22. 1 Peter, three, eight through twenty-two. Hear the word of the Lord. To sum up, all you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are in slander, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is doing, doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that ha- he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the con- construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So ends the reading of God's word. What goes through your heart and your mind when you hear about people, Christians being persecuted for their faith? What what is your feeling, especially towards those who are engaged in persecution? What feeling do you have towards government and administrations which support people who actively persecute Christians or governments themselves which are set against believers and persecute them? Is your first response anger? Is it it your desire to see these people punished in this world? Is that... Is it that maybe that you desire that these people who are persecuted, you can somehow unite together and rise up against their persecutors and um, get even? Maybe you hope for the intervention of uh, the UN or maybe it's America or some other nation to come and bring justice or to uh, impose sanctions upon uh, that nation or the people in such a nation. Now, 
My purpose this evening is not to get into international politics or the actions of one nation against another. These are complicated matters, and there is uh, good cause and, 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 and in many cases for uh, nations taking such actions. Um, in any case, however, if your hope, though, it, for those who are persecuted, including yourself, if that is what God calls you to, if that is your hope, if, if, if your hope is in the retribution of man, whatever form it may take, political or otherwise, well, then you are not thinking biblically or according to our text this evening. So this evening, we're going to take a look at the right way to confront persecution and to find victory over it. Now, this is an important topic for you today, not only because it informs you how you might be praying for those who are suffering very active persecution in, in other lands, but also as we think about in our own land, persecution will come and more, more likely than not, it will become more overt and more difficult for people to maintain a confession of being a Christian and may suffer in many ways for that. We should not assume that we always have the freedoms that we currently enjoy. In summary, this text calls you to bless those who do evil, those who do evil to you even, and to look to Christ's victory in suffering as your hope for victory over persecution. Now, if it seems like I have been talking a lot about persecution in sermons lately. Uh, uh, it, that's a good observation. And uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, 1 Peter really is sort of like a manual for the persecuted church. Uh, a, a title for the, the book of 1 Peter might be Victory Over Persecution, a handbook for the suffering Christian. So uh, this evening, we're going to continue thinking about that uh, as a subject, and we'll consider this concept of victory over persecution uh, under three basic points. The first one, having love amidst persecution. Second, suffering amidst persecution. And finally, Christ amidst persecution. Loving amidst the persecution, suffering, and really blessing others uh, during that suffering amidst persecution. And Christ amidst persecution. When we think about this topic, when we hear this word persecution, probably the, the first words that pop into our mind are probably not love or sympathy or kind-hearted or humble. And yet, as we read through this text, those words are right there as Peter, in this section, very directly addresses suffering for doing the right thing. Um, in fact, as I mentioned in my previous sermon, Peter's already been dealing with this topic indirectly as he has detailed the proper way to behave towards those in authority. And last time we talked about our relationship to those in authority and specifically thinking about that in terms of these authority people in authority uh, being ones who would have the power to bring persecution upon those who are subject to, to them. They would have been the most likely to inflict persecution. And so as you think about that topic now here, 
And Peter says, to sum up, you know, summing up what he said just before in the passage is related to the, our relationship with, with authorities. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Uh, since these words say, you, all of you, um, and calls these people to be harmonious, no doubt this verse in the first instance has in mind that the Christians need to have these attitudes towards one another, towards the brothers and sisters that they have in Christ. In a time to, of, of suffering, in times when there, there's pressure put upon you through persecution, um, it's e easy for Christians to be divided, unsympathetic, unloving, and hard-hearted towards one another, especially when there are disagreements about how to react to persecution and maybe how to handle uh, lapped believers if they, you know, in times of great distress, uh, might deny Christ or, or turn away from the church or in some way betray their confession of faith. But this verse calls believers, calls you to cultivate qualities for one another that will promote true unity and help encourage the weak in the middle of difficult times. Uh, no doubt these qualities and, and the unity that results from them are not simply means, uh, uh, they are ends in themselves, excuse me, uh, but are and are exclusively for the sake of believers. They exist so that believers may be a blessing to others. To show brotherly love, humility, and sympathy to those who do not yet know Christ. Even the enemies of Christ, even those who are actively bringing persecution against Christians. For the text goes on this way. It says, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, at this point, Peter is clearly kind of changing directions. Not so much thinking about the, the, the believers here uh, and their relationship to one another, but rather he starts thinking about these others who are coming and inflicting trouble and harm and persecution amongst the, the believers. How do we deal with them? You know, the, the way that we, in the, we live in the world, or the way of this world, or succeeding in this world, is to beat your competition. Especially if your competitor seeks to harm you, the way to respond is to harm them back. That's the way we win. That's how we succeed. That's not the, the, the calling of a Christian. You are called that you might receive a blessing from God. Therefore, you must bless others. Now, when you read through this text in English, uh, the way most translations, English translations read, you're, you're led to believe that the text says that you are called to bless. Your calling is to be a blessing to others. Now, certainly that is true, and that's implied by what is said in this text. But the, the Greek is a little ambiguous, but it seems to favor the understanding that we are called as believers to inherit a blessing. That is our calling. That's what it's trying to emphasize here, that we are called as believers for the purpose of inheriting a blessing. In the NIV, it actually adds the word so before the word that. So it says, you are called so that 
you may obtain a blessing. Now, this kind of flows from what uh, Peter said elsewhere in, in his uh, um, uh, letter. In 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 4, it says that we have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. If you remember me preaching on that uh, a number of months ago. In other words, as Christians, you are, or at least should be, confident that you will inherit a blessing. And therefore, you are free to bless others, even when they seek to do you harm. Though you might lose in the short term, in the here and now of this world, you know that you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. So you don't have to worry about missing out on something in this world if you react in a kind way, if you don't win in the, in the, in the worldly way of thinking of, of winning. Don't need to be aggressive in the face of persecution, fear of losing out. You know, I know some of us, uh, maybe we've said this ourselves or thought this ourselves, sometimes maybe when we, when we face some difficult situation, some, some person is really annoying or just makes you angry, sometimes you say, say to yourself, oh, yeah. right now, I wish I wasn't a Christian because now I could just go punch that guy in the face, right? Uh, uh, and maybe I can, after a while, repent. But, you know, anyway, so we have that wish. And, uh, uh, you know, but, but that kind of thinking says, it's really saying, you know, it's really better to be able to go out and seek vengeance than it is to do what God commanded, which is to, to be a blessing rather than to seek vengeance. Um, but there's something good in not being a Christian. You have this so-called freedom to go and do something bad. But actually, as a believer, we know that even if it seems like the natural thing for us to do is want to go out and deck somebody, that that is not just not an appropriate uh, action, but it's one that, that really is not of any benefit to, to ourselves or anyone else. While we might be, in a way, have some misguided zeal for justice and, and seek to right wrongs done by persecutors by repaying their evil and kind, you must remember what Paul says in Romans 12, 19. It says, leave room for God's wrath, knowing that ultimately God will right the wrongs. Not you, not America, not the United Nations, although you know God may use these things uh, in, in some ways, to, to bring, bring wrath. It does speak about that also in Romans 13 as well. But ultimately, we know we trust God for these things. We don't need to act in unrighteous ways because we know God ultimately will right the wrong. Peter supports his statements here by quoting from Psalm 34, which says, which I won't, won't repeat, but it, it serves to remind you that, that God promises to keep his eyes on his own as they do good and attends to their prayers. And in this way of doing good, in this way of doing good, the, the, the way of love, even to our enemies, this is the way which we have true victory in persecution. Not by decking the persecutor, but, but rather by showing love to them. Now, this is not to say that Christians will not suffer. All, of course, that's what I've been implying in all that, that I've said up to this point. Um, while it's true that Normally, if, if you're a law-abiding citizen, you seek the good of others in love, you're kind and, and polite to others, well, then you're not going to be harmed, as, as verse 13 teaches. However, it also tells us that's often not the case. 
when we live in a way that is, is in contradiction to the rest of the, of the world, sometimes the world wants to push back. Verse 14 clearly reminds us of this. Even if you should suffer for righteousness, there is an acknowledgement. Many times believers do suffer for the sake of righteousness. Peter knows this well from his own experiences, that often the righteous do suffer for doing that which is right. And it's not something he really needs to remind his audience either because they were suffering for that as well. Of course, Jesus is the prime example of this. And we'll look a little bit more of his example later. For now, just consider that Peter says that those in this situation are blessed. Even if you are suffering for Christ's sake, for doing right, Peter says you're blessed. Now, it's easy to read those words and, you know, Go right past them, go quickly, and you know, read these things. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're blessed, whatever. But you have to reflect on them. And we, we've seen these words and heard word words like this many times before throughout the scripture. But do you really believe them? Do you really look at the possibility of suffering under persecution as an opportunity for blessing? You might look at the opportunity to, to, to gain wealth or a better job, or more possessions, or more comforts of the, this world, or better food, or something like that. Is, that's a, those are the things are blessings. What about persecution, suffering for doing that which is right? Obviously, you shouldn't go around looking for trouble. But consider another quote from Psalm 34, which Peter quoted earlier, this time in verses 17 and 18. It says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and save those who are crushed in spirit. Well, it's certainly true that the Lord is close to all his people, no matter what situation they find themselves in. But there is a special closeness that the Lord maintains with those who are, it says here, brokenhearted. Or we could, in our own context, think about them being persecuted or suffered for doing that which is right. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. As God's people are deprived of the normal comforts and securities of this life, they are in need to, to rely more upon the strength of the Lord. An example we can find in Peter's own life. We can find it in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 41. After he and the other disciples were questioned by the Sanhedrin, it says that they, the, the Sanhedrin called the apostles in and had them flogged, had them beaten. Okay, This is not an e a physically pleasant thing to have happen to you. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Now, now no, no doubt, they didn't take any joy in being beaten in and of itself. I mean, they can go out and beat themselves and hurt themselves if they want to, and but there's nothing of value in that. They rejoiced because this suffering was for the sake of the name of Jesus, for spreading the gospel in his name that they were flogged, knowing that God is close to such people and blesses them 
with a greater measure of his grace in those difficult times. But would you rejoice in such a situation or respond in bitterness against your oppressor? Would you wish to just you know, go deck him, go punch him? Or would you draw close to the Lord, seeking his blessing? Or would you harbor anger against God for allowing you to have to suffer in this difficult situation? And these are hard questions to ask. But these are ones, questions that you ought to ask yourselves. Remembering that God grants special grace in these circumstances. Yes, it's true. Right now, you, you're not called to suffer, and, and maybe this is... The recipients of Peter's letter uh, suffered, and so you don't have that kind of grace. But you have to think about the fact that if you should have to face those kind of things, be confident that God is going to give you grace to endure them. People who are ordained are transformed so that they need not fear the things that, that, that those people outside of Christ fear. Our text reminds us, have no fear of them, or the NIV translates this as, as, do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be troubled. This is a quote from Isaiah 8.12. And from that context, we know that it's only God who we are to fear. Well, why is it that we are only to fear him? Well, Peter tells you this evening that the Lord is against those who do evil. In verses 12, verse 12. But the Lord always loves and blesses those who are his own, even when it's hard to see. And oftentimes, it's, it's in these difficult times uh, when we grow to love God and trust him more when we have to face these kinds of difficult things. I know that, you know, there, that little poem, or I don't know if it, or was it a poem or is it a, a, a proverb or a parable or something, a little story of footprints. It's kind of cliched and sometimes a bit sentimental, but, it, but it's basically, it's true, you know, you, you, you see these footprints in the sand. It's supposed to be Jesus is walking with the person, and then during times of trouble, you only see one set of footprints. And he's like, "Well, Jesus, why, why is it that that, that this is the case? When we're having trouble, that you weren't there with me." And he's saying, "No, no, no. I was carrying you during those times. That's why you only see one set of footprints." And again, while it, maybe it's it's a little bit uh, uh, cliche or what have you, but it's it's true. In these times of difficulty, that's when we draw even closer to the Lord. And our great desire as believers is ought, ought not to be drawing close to the comforts of this world, but rather drawing more co close to our, our God and Savior. Therefore, you must in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Christ and Christ alone is the Lord, and he needs to be respected with fear and reverence. We do not owe that to the world. The world is not our master, our savior, or protector. Only he has the power to grant us what we need. Even when we are suffering difficulties, it may not seem like God is, is providing for us, but we have to have in faith confidence that that is indeed what God is doing. But if you're persecuted and they suffer, well, how will you respond if someone asks you, why are you enduring this? Why... He's, maybe they look at you and say, well, you're suffering as a Christian. This seems crazy. All you have to do is just, you know, say you're not a Christian and, and, or deny Christ and you can get out of this trouble. And it's often the case that uh, 
throughout his church, church history, believers could simply sign a piece of paper or offer a little offering to a, an idol or um, just you know, not do a, a certain thing, go to church or what have you, and, and they could live a comfortable life in this world. They don't have to suffer. Uh, if you had this choice, what would you do? Verse 15 tells us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope which you have. Now, it was often the case in the ancient times when the Romans were persecuting the Christians that, again, all they had to do was offer some incense to the emperor and they could be freed. And they would, the, sometimes the Roman government would, would persecute them or punish them, not so much because they cared so much about their, their faith in Christianity, but just the thought, oh, these Christians are awfully stubborn. We just ask one little thing from them and they won't do it. And if, if they won't do this one little thing, these uh, Christians must be really stubborn and really problematic people. So you had to be prepared. How are we going to answer? When people are asking, well, why won't you just do this little thing to, to, to just get along well with people? Now, for this verse, 15, it is quoted as a proof for the need to be prepared to engage in apologetics or the irrational intellectual defense of the faith against critics of the faith. And now, while I suppose that that's not an incorrect use of this verse, in this context, it specifically applies to, to those who are placed in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation of persecution. If you endure persecution for the sake of his name, how will you answer those who ask you, why it is it that you are willing to suffer this for the name of Christ? So you need to be prepared to answer this question by being able to speak of God's great love for you, for, his, for the, the grace that comes through the cross of Christ. And how you delight in knowing Jesus above all things. That he's above all the pleasures of this world. To betray the faith is one of the most dreadful, most disgusting things that you can imagine doing. So as you have opportunity, you need to be also discipling others who have the same mind. That recognizes that Jesus is better than anything. And that to do it. Anything for his sake is still a blessing, even though it's difficult to see. And so this brings us to our last point, Christ amid persecution. Peter here seeks this in this last portion of our text this evening to provide the basis for which Christ ought to be, Christians ought to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Christ has endured persecution on behalf of his people to ensure our eternal salvation, and the defeat of all our enemies. Verse 18 begins with the word for, specifically telling us that what follows is an explanation of what preceded. Why do we need a, to, to give a good answer to those who uh, question us about why we would suffer for the name of Christ? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the glorious gospel. Jesus has died for us lowly sinners to provide for us through his death, the payment for our sins leading to eternal life. We have in Christ that which can never fade 
or tarnished or be stolen or destroyed. Rightly said by Elizabeth Elliot's first husband who died in the missionary service that he is no fool who trades that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. Everything you have in this world can be taken away from you, but the grace of God cannot. Those who come to faith through the proclamation of the gospel, as you share the gospel with others and people come to faith, those people have eternal life and you will have them for all of eternity. They cannot be ultimately taken from you as well. A few verses back, after Peter tells his readers that to be ready to make a defense for their faith, he says in verses 15 through 17, to do so with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. Now, obviously, we, we sometimes do suffer for doing the wrong things, and we shouldn't really glory in that. Uh, but sometimes God gives the opportunity for us to suffer in, uh, for doing that which is right. And that is a good thing. Now, one advantage that foreign missionaries have in their lives when they go off to another country uh, is the simple fact that each day when they wake up, they realize that they're not in their homelands, that they are in that place uh, for a purpose. That, uh, that this strange surrounding in which they find themselves is there, uh, or they're there in that place because they've been called to serve those people, to proclaim the gospel to, to those people. And when opposition occurs, they recognize that they're there with the purpose of reaching those kinds of people, not fighting back against them, and yet... Even then, it is difficult uh, for them as well to not to respond in bitterness. All of us, however, we recognize whether we're not in our homeland or not, our physical or, home, or yeah, our worldly homeland, we recognize really this world isn't our final home. We, we are sojourners. And many times throughout First Peter, Peter reminds his audience of that fact. This isn't our homeland. We are here for a purpose. We're here to be a blessing to others. We're here to live out the gospel and proclaim the gospel amongst an unbelieving world. All believers have in Christ many promises of eternal blessings secured for us by Christ's work if we follow and obey him. Why would anyone want to tarnish one's relationship to the one who has made such eternal promises for a few moments of passing pleasure on this earth? Why would we ruin the opportunity to see others come to faith and have eternal life for a few moments of worldly pleasure and comfort? The answer we are to give to unbelievers in regard to the hope that is within us is that, yes, of, of course, I might lose out on a few pleasures in this world as I suffer, but I have a greater opportunity here, a greater opportunity to live for God's glory, an opportunity to share the gospel and to, to live faithfully before even the one who's persecuting me. I have an opportunity to grow closer to Christ even in these difficulties. This is the answer for why I am willing to suffer. Because it is a great joy to live for my Savior, and turning away from him is a great sadness. 
Further, Christ here says that he's given us his spirit to give us strength to endure in these times. It's the same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Verse 22 says, with the angels, the authorities, and the powers having been subjected to him. So now that seems all good and clear. Then you should read on through this text. Then you get to verses 19 through 21. Uh, these seem a little bit confusing, a little bit odd. Uh, what is it that these have for us, and for the especially persecuted believers? Uh, this stuff about Noah and baptism and so forth. Uh, Bible commentators and interpreters throughout history have de de devised all manner of strange ideas and doctrines from these few verses that really have no basis in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture. And this evening, I'm not going to try and go through this and list a whole bunch of different wrong ideas that people had about these, uh, the, the, this text. Um, and I'm not going to talk about different possibilities of how to understand it. I'm just going to give a simple explanation that I think is faithful to what the text uh, is teaching um, for, our, for, the, for all of our benefit, including my own. Uh, Peter here is saying, verses 19 and 20, that in the power of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Christ through his servant Noah preached to the disobedient ones in Noah's day when Noah was building the ark. Uh, in, in Peter's second book, 2 Peter, he calls Noah a herald of righteousness who, according to the book of Hebrews, condemned the world. Uh, these disobedient ones to whom Christ spoke through Noah are now in hell or in prison. The text speaks of them as spirits, which could refer to people who are separated in death from their bodies. Uh, the problem being that the word spirit here is never used elsewhere in scripture to refer to people. So these disobedient ones, those who were destroyed in the flood, or, or these de 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 demonic powers, it's not so, so clear. I'm not so, so, so sure, but consider in 2 Peter it says in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and verse 9, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Therefore, this could be referring to angelic or demonic beings corresponding to what is referred in Jude verse 6, which says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these Jesus has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains until uh, the, the, the judgment on the, uh, on the great day. So therefore, just as Noah, a herald of right, righteousness or a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter 2, 5, just as he proclaimed and lived the truth in the face of no doubt a scoffing uh, world of unbelievers and for that matter, demonic forces, so should you. Just like Noah lived in faith, not knowing how it was that God was going to make use of this building of uh, an ark, which must have seemed absurd to the world around him. You need to follow his example. And as you proclaim and live out the truth, just as Noah did, remember that the Spirit of Christ works in you and speaks through you, just as he did in the case of Noah. 
and in the prophets of the Old Testament that we, uh, we, we studied in 1 Peter 1.11. The, the text goes on to say that despite believers like Noah and his family being small in number, so um, eight in the case of Noah and his family, if we, we compare those numbers to, to the numbers who do not believe, uh, God will deliver them just as he delivered Noah and his family. Therefore, you ought to be confident based on God's past faithful dealings with his people that he will be faithful to rescue you in the midst of whatever troubles or persecutions that you may find yourself in. And so this, this interestingly enough, also ought to cause you to reflect on your baptism, which is mentioned here. Uh, though few are baptized, these few will be saved if they trust in Christ. Just as Noah's experienced salvation, those baptized have experienced salvation as well. Not because the water of baptism may remove some dirt from your body, as the flood in Noah's day may have saved Noah by removing unbelievers from the earth, but because they have a, a pledge of a good conscience. Um, or in the, the, the uh, New American Standard here, it says, appeal to God for a good conscience. Um, others say a pledge for a good conscience towards God. Typically, when new believers were baptized in the early church, they, they took a, a pledge, or uh, as we might say in modern times, they, they took a, a, a baptismal vow or membership vows, uh, referring to one's faith and their relationship with the Lord. To be able to take them in good conscience would mean that you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, and therefore you are saved. You are born again, and Christ lives within you. It saves, you know, baptism is saved, not because there's any map, magic in baptismal waters, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to which you have been united if you have been baptized in, good, in a good conscience or in good faith. In other words, that your baptism... Uh, is united to a genuine faith. This is the great hope of the gospel, the great hope of all who are persecuted for his name, that Jesus has borne our punishment on the cross, that he died and he was buried, he suffered the, the anguish of God's wrath on behalf of his people. But then he rose again from the dead and now has gone into heaven and, and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And so... If that is true, then you can have victory during persecution, even as Christ and Noah had victory in persecution themselves. Not because you are strong, but because Jesus is strong, and because the spirit he gives you is powerful. This evening, and we have already briefly discussed the, the, the sacrament of baptism. Uh, this morning, we, we observed the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Uh, however, when you partake one sacrament, you can reflect on the other. If you receive baptism with a good conscience, you can be encouraged that you are united to the whole work of Christ and are saved. And if you look to the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper in good conscience, you can be reminded that Christ today continues to work for and with you through his shed blood and his broken body. These sacraments are constant reminders that you have been especially separated to God from the rest of the world as his special people. He will preserve you through whatever trial that you face now or in the future. The larger catechism exhorts us to improve our baptism, which is an odd phrase to us in the 21st century. It does not mean to make our baptism better 
or make baptism better or to make it more valid than it was before. But it means to draw from it more grace that is given through our baptism as we meditate upon it. The larger catechism speaks of, in times of temptation, drawing strength from the death and the resurrection of Christ into whom we have been baptized. I think that this is also part of what Peter has in mind when he, when he refers to it here. Our baptism is another tool for having victory during persecution. It reminds us that we have been cleansed of our sins, that we're united to Christ, and because Jesus loves us and set his mark upon us, that he will carry us through difficult times. Reminds us that God loves you, and, and in Christ alone you stand. So be encouraged in these things. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we often consider this idea of being persecuted, being tortured, or put in jail, and it, it, it causes us to shudder, causes us to fear. Uh, it's so alien in, in many ways to us here in the West. Lord, we know that you have called many of your people to such things. And while we struggle to understand that, Lord, we are encouraged by this word to, to, to be reminded that, that your grace is powerful and endures your people in the past who endure. And so it can also, if you should call us, likewise, it is powerful to give us the strength to endure as well. Oh, Father, as we meditate on these things, let us not be fearful, but rather have joy in knowing that your power is, is sufficient in all these things. Father, may we draw closer to you. As we face whatever difficulty it may be that we have in life, may we draw closer to you, seek to, to de uh, uh, drink more deeply of the well of your grace and be uh, sanctified from our sins. Oh, Lord, Sanctify us. Whatever method it is that you would call us to be sanctified, by whatever method you, you would call us to be sanctified, sanctify us, Lord, so that we might be more pure in our lives, that we might draw closer to you, that we might enjoy you more fully and have uh, the, the joy of salvation overflowing from us, Lord. Father, we, we pray, Lord, now, um, knowing that in you alone do we have confidence. So let us, as we come and, and, and we, we sing your praise, let us be confident that in you alone do we have all these things. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.